Welcome to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small, your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Brought to you by LakeLink, your online fishing resource at lake-link.com. Outdoors Radio is also brought to you by Huntworth Gear, performance camel wear at a price you can afford. Huntworthgear.com. And by Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. Now a proud sponsor of Outdoors Radio and always a supporter of duck hunters everywhere. Ducks.org. I'm Dan Small. Today, author Jeff Nania talks about his latest book in the Northern Lakes Mystery Series, Bow Cutter. And outdoor writer Joe Shedd shares the crazy story of an Alaskan moose hunt that almost went south. All that and more coming up on Outdoors Radio, so stay right there. It's time now for Madison Outdoors, and you hear this feature every week at this time on WTSO, Fox Radio in Madison, the Big 1070, also known as The Game, and you hear it on our podcast anytime at all on Lakelink, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And joining us once again now, back and still recovering from the St. Paul Ice Fishing Show, is pro angler Duffy Cup. Well, Duffy, welcome back. It's good to be here, Dan. You spent a busy weekend, I guess, a long weekend last week at the St. Paul Show. How was that? It's always an interesting show to go to, uh, and I tell people that have never been there, even if you had absolutely no desire and no interest in ice fishing, if you went through there, when you got done, your mouth would be wide open, and you just wouldn't believe that all these businesses and all these people are in these couple of buildings it's just kind of mind-boggling when you see it for the first time. And ice fishing, as you, you and I and most of our listeners know, is a big deal in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, parts of Canada, certainly Ontario, and probably over in Quebec, and in the Dakotas, and, you know, to a certain extent in the Northeast where there are lots of lakes. But, boy, you get south of our border with Illinois, and there isn't much ice fishing, so it's really a localized thing, upper Midwest for the most part. Yeah, it is. I mean, there are some guys, in fact, I talked to one on Sunday at the show, and he's from Illinois because he's got a couple of lakes around us. And if they get usable ice, he says it usually does very, very well, but it doesn't happen very often. When it does, it might be two or three weeks. Well, and in this part of the country, you know, we're used to four or five months of ice, but that has changed in the last few years. Was there any discussion there about milder winters, uh, later start to ice fishing, that kind of thing? No, I, I don't see that. I have heard that even last weekend when, when I was up at St. Paul, there were some people on a local lake, and I don't know where it was or anything. And so this is just a rumor as far as I'm concerned, but a big piece of ice broke off and there were a whole bunch of people floating around out there. I don't know if they had to put up a sail to get out of there or what. <laughs> but yeah, early ice is not something to screw around with. No, it certainly isn't. Well, you said this would be an eye-opener or a jaw-dropper if you had never visited this show. In what sense? All the vendors or all the well, unique items? What? The number of vendors and there's, you know, there's some big organizations like the one that I work for, Clam Corporation, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of small, for lack of a better term, garage companies out there where guys in their spare time make stuff that people use, and there's a couple of them, but boy, those guys put out a lot of product and they make a lot of money doing it. Let's face it, the reason this show exists is to make people money. But it's also to get people that maybe are not interested or very little interested in to get into it a little bit more because the equipment now and the clothing and everything. I, I talked to a lady on Saturday where she said she didn't want to go with her husband because she was cold all the time. And I told her to give her husband a hard time to get her some of that good clam clothing on. And there's no reason for having cold feet or anything else if you, if you have the correct equipment. No, that's for sure. It's it's changed a lot. What was new there? Anything really interesting in the in the novelty sense? New items? Well, of course, I, I'm working with a, a large corporation on this, but their entire business is based on uh, selling this stuff, and they have come up with the shelters. They have uh, a new XT line they have for the pullover shelters. The one, the two, they're, they're now making a three and a four-man shelter, 
And if people see the ads and stuff for it, if there's an XT code describing that thing, that means it's extra tall. So there's no more crunching down to get into a one-man or a two-man shelter and everything. They've made them higher. There's a little bit more room. If you're using a little longer rod, you need a little bit more height to uh, set the hook and everything. And they're really, really responding to the needs of the people that fish. And they have so many of us who are not actually employees of the company. They're looking for feedback all the time. They say, what would you like to see different? And they're reacting to that, and they put a lot of money into it. So Clam Corporation is quite an outfit, and I'm pretty impressed. I've only been working with them for two years now, but I'm impressed at how they design their stuff and the engineers that they have involved in putting all that stuff together. And, of course, they came up with the first modern ice fishing portable shelter with Dave Genz's original clam shell, and, right. and he's still working with them. A, uh, last year they put out a special edition, uh, I think, I can't remember if it's it was the 30th uh, anniversary of the first ones that he went out there and made, and he made them white like his original ones were. And then uh, this past week, it was uh, Dave Ginn's 75th birthday. Ah. So on Saturday night, we had probably 200 people in the room, and we had a little birthday party for him. Oh, nice. So that was pretty cool. He's, he's really a good guy. Yes, he is, and he's uh, the godfather of ice fishing, I guess is what he's been called, yeah. and rightly yeah, so. Yeah, that's, that's his nickname. Yeah. <laughs> well, for people who are into ice fishing, what should we be doing now to get ready? Because we've had some cold weather and then some warm days, and pretty soon those lakes up in in your area there are going to freeze over, and, and up north, I'm sure some are already. For the people that live around this area, it's basically make sure you're getting your equipment ready, putting new line on your reels, anything that is electric, make sure that that battery is charged. Look over those jigs, and sometimes if you, you take a small jig, like a 32nd ounce jig, and even those sometimes need to be sharpened, so you need to pay attention to that. And then your plastics, and make sure that the stuff is organized. I know Clam makes all these little boxes and stuff. If you're not organized, that's your fault, because they really have some nice, unique features out there for people to keep jigs and small spoons and stuff organized so that when you actually get out on the ice, things are easy to find and it's not a mess and you're not untangling things. Yeah, we've come a long way from everything goes in the white bucket and then you tip it upside down and sit on it. Um, you know, there there are all kinds of uh, gadgets, including storage containers and, and uh, easy access containers that you described there. Well, any late season musky fishing still going on? That season runs through the well, end of the month. Well, I, I did uh, come across information there uh and I got the information actually from Muskie School right here in Wanakee, or Muskie Fool. And uh, they, there was a, a guy that fishes for muskies in the Madison area uh, with fly rod, and he caught a 52-incher. So that's that's a good thing about the, the fish population in this area and uh, starting to build interest in people that, are, that want to fly fish for muskies. And there will be... Amazingly enough, two classes at the Capital City Muskie School in March on how to catch those fish so with, with fly equipment. So that's going to be pretty interesting to see what kind of crowd we get for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm going to do one of those, and of course uh, Dan Donovan's going to do the other from Muskie Fool. That was Nathan Jandel, wasn't it, who caught that 52? I, I don't remember the individual's yep. name. You would know it better than I am. You'd yep. be more involved in that, but that's good. And then the other unique thing is we're going to have a class specifically made for women muskie fishing, and I just uh, signed on another gal that I met up at the, the ice show, and she fishes muskies out of a kayak. Oh, boy. And uh, so we're going to have a kayak muskie fishing uh, class going also at the muskie school. All right, and tell us where and when and how we register for that. We're at Wanakee High School and that is going to be on March 25th, 
And then right after the first of the year, you could go to capitalcitymuskiesinc.com and you can register for the class online. Most people now do it online. You can still do it by mail and everything else. We will have stuff out at the Muskie Expos. Keep your eyes on Facebook. Yeah. Do that. There's going to be a lot of stuff on there. Okay. Well, that's over three months away, but it doesn't hurt to start planning and putting it in your schedule at least. Well, I've been working on it since the end of August. So well, I, that. Yeah, I know you haven't, <laughs> but the people who sign up to go, you know, they go, when is that? i got to sign up. Well, Duffy, we got to let you go, so thank you so much, and I hope you are fully recovered by the time the ice comes and you can get out there and do some of that uh, hole hopping yourself. All righty, Dan, thanks. Duffy Cup with the Madison Report talking about the St. Paul Ice Fishing Show. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. If you're ever in a motor vehicle accident, call Hupe and Abraham, named best personal injury law firm by the Wisconsin Law Journal year after year. The firm of Hupe and Abraham has collected more than a billion dollars for its clients. In fact, they collect millions of dollars every month for hundreds of satisfied clients. Call the firm voted best and rated best, Hupe and Abraham, 800-800-5678 or visit hupe.com. And all 11 offices of Hupe and Abraham in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois are open for business. And Mike Hupe, the president of uh, the firm of Hupe and Abraham, has paid thousands of dollars in rewards to help solve crimes in the Milwaukee area. He's also the president of Milwaukee Crime Stoppers, and he announced that he will pay a $25,000 reward for the next anonymous tip that solves a homicide case. So if you've got a tip on an unsolved homicide case, visit MilwaukeeCrimeStoppers.com. Well, joining me from Wisconsin Rapids, once again, Jeff Kelm. Well, Jeff, good to talk to you as always. Yeah, hey, Dan. So, any more deer hunting? The muzzleloader season is winding down as we're recording this, and there's the four-day antlerless season this weekend. Yeah, not as much uh, 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 muzzleloader hunting as I wanted to do. A lot of things in the way. Yeah, I think most people are aware I'm the tournament director for the Masters Walleye Circuit and uh, National Walleye Tour, and trying to get things prepared for 2023 and beyond. This is the time of year where I start working on uh, 2024 uh, and ahead. And so with everything that kind of came at us with taking over the National Walleye Tour events in 23, we're trying to smooth things out so that we can transition to 24 a little bit better. So kind of a bunch of stuff fell on my plate over the course of time and, uh, you know, life in general, decorating for the holidays, little holiday travel, things like that. But this weekend in the antlerless season, uh, Robert has asked to uh, do some hunting, so we're going to do a little bit of uh, of doe hunting uh, in the central Wisconsin area and see if we can't um, put uh, at least another deer or two in, in the freezer for somebody. I, I think what we're probably at this point, we got a couple people we know could use some, uh, use some deer in their freezer, and uh, we'll probably donate them. Wonderful. Yeah, and it'll give Robert more experience deer hunting, which... I know he's eager to have, and that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Just having the, you know, those those times, those images, those practicing times. It's it's good to have that, uh, you know, all part of the all part of the game. You know, it's it. You think about it, Dan. I mean, I couldn't hunt until I was twelve. Uh, yeah. Was it probably about the same for you, right? Well, I grew up in Western New York, and at that time, you had to be fourteen to even carry a gun and to go small game hunting 16 for big game hunting and so i never i actually went hunting for pheasants on my 14th birthday and missed a bunch of them using my dad's lefevre double gauge uh, or double barrel 20 gauge shotgun which i now own and um, uh, got a chance to hobnob with uh, 
bunch of gentlemen, pipe smoking, fedora wearing, <laughs> hanging out in the barn of the farmyard there in the late fifties. Oh, sure. it was um, it was an adventure, as you know, as you yeah, know. yeah. But you know, great memories and stuff like that. And for him, you know, at at nine, he's going to be ten here in February. You know, he's already got quite a bit of it of that experience uh, behind him, and lots of memories in front of him. And and it's just been a lot of fun to have that that bonding time between him and I. Absolutely. Well, I'm heading back up to Bayfield County for the four-day antler season, looking for, like you, for a little more venison, and I could use another deer in the freezer to go with that roadkill that we've been working on, and uh, this this one I'll butcher myself. We had a butcher in uh, up north uh, take care of that first one because it just wasn't handy for me to do it, but mm-hmm. I'm ready to cut one up myself. Well, there were a couple of scary videos on YouTube recently and shared on Twitter and kicked around through social media. Um, and you saw one that I didn't. I saw one of a coyote attacking a toddler in California and another one of a raccoon attacking a little girl on her front doorstep. And I think these were surveillance cameras that caught them because it was a fixed position camera that must have been triggered mm. by movement mm-hmm. and you saw one where what a bobcat attacked the lady yeah bobcat attacked uh right in you know kind of a suburbia front yard uh she walked out of her house with her husband and she got in between two vehicles and you could hear a you know a nasty loud growl i guess from the cat and the cat kind of jumped at her husband went around the car grabbed the cat Know, and you could tell it was a bobcat thing it was huge. He had it by the scruff of the neck and another, you know, back portion of the fur and tossed it into the yard. It was just a real crazy, crazy type video. And, you know, it's interesting looking at, you know, raccoon, coyote, bobcat, all fur bearers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Dan, it's no secret that the, the price of fur has dropped dramatically over the course of the last many decades. And, I don't know if maybe that has something to do with maybe the increase in these fur-bearing populations, predator populations that maybe left a little bit less checked. You know, I don't know. I I think you're right. And not only are fur prices down, but even with fur prices at a higher level, fewer and fewer people are actually trapping. And some states and areas within states ban certain kinds of trapping. I don't know what the law is in California, but I can't imagine that in, I think this was in Los Angeles County, Woodland Hills, wherever that is. Uh, I can't imagine you could be trapping coyotes there, but you know, these animals, and you know this, Jeff, I've seen them myself when I lived in the Milwaukee area a dozen years ago uh, to Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. We would occasionally see a coyote on the highway, and uh, I saw one run out between it waited for cars to pass it ran out and grabbed a flat possum on the road took it back into a, a, a front yard and was eating it and mm-hmm. you know i'm sure that that's in in part a, a source of food for that animal and of course garbage cans mm-hmm. and bird feeders and uh, little puppies and cats <laughs> and other other unintended yeah. uh, food sources but you know people who leave garbage out or who intentionally feed wildlife are going to encourage that kind of thing unintentionally yeah absolutely it's uh you know it's just so it you know we look at so many great conservation efforts over the course of you know many many decades obviously all the leopold's you know legacy and things like that we look at white-tailed deer wild turkey all kinds of different things and how well we've done at conserve conserving and preserving those types of animals uh, but the unintended consequences of some of that is greater predator populations, greater, you know, uh, greater things that, that really need to be managed alongside of it. And, and that's fallen by the wayside in so many different ways, uh, including, yep. you know, including the, the sprawling of cities and things like that. We, we run into, you know, those populations of those animals as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One would wonder if some of these animals might have been rabid. Because daylight sure. attacks by uh, any predator is, they're just very rare uh, mm-hmm. attacks on humans. I can see attacking a small dog and even a toddler because, you know, a, a little baby might look like an easy lunch. But mm-hmm. uh, a brazen animal like that is, is uh, odds are it's, it's 
something's wrong. Odds are it's yeah. rabbit, but it, yeah, something wrong with it. Something's and wrong. I, I know in a couple of cases I overheard comments on the one video uh, that we are getting the rabies shots, we're getting tested. And you talk about the guy who grabbed the bobcat by the scruff of the neck. Holy cow, what a brave thing to do and a rather, <laughs> you know, reckless thing to do. And this mother who came out when her daughter was screaming, the daughter grabs the mother around the waist. Mother opens the door with one hand. She grabs a raccoon by the scruff of the neck with the other hand shoves the daughter in, yells to a neighbor, I think it's a rabid raccoon, takes a better grip on the animal, and tosses it just like your, uh, you know, your video with the bobcat. Sure. So, I mean, sure. adrenaline kicks in, and the fight-or-flight uh, maternal instinct or paternal instinct in the case of the guy going mm-hmm. after the coyote. Mm-hmm. He threw his water bottle at that coyote because it didn't, it didn't run away. But anyway, yeah. interesting videos, and I'm sure we'll see many, many more because everybody's got trail cameras, a cell phone and and or surveillance cameras now it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to go anywhere without somebody pointing a camera at you yeah yeah for sure and dan schmidt shared a, a video from uh, twitter dan schmidt is the editor of deer and deer hunting magazine two bucks are fighting one gets his front leg stuck behind an antler and it looked like he twisted his neck at first and he's thrashing and jumping and flailing around and the other one's standing there looking at him like what are you doing? And finally, the <laughs> other one gets gets his leg loose. I mean, that's the kind of move we do when we have a buck down and no sled, and we sometimes put the antlers or the front legs between the antlers, you know, and tie them down. That's what sure. he did. He got one leg up there, and, man, it, it was... Uh, it was exciting. Check those out. You can probably do a search for them, folks, if you've got uh, if you've got time and the inclination to do it. Well, speaking of videos, our Facebook page, the Deer Hunt Wisconsin Facebook page, and my own personal page, we are looking for photos and videos from deer season. So if you have some, and I've gotten a lot of them already, go to those pages and share them with us. We might use them, or some of them anyway, on next year's Deer Hunt Wisconsin show. Well, coming up, author Jeff Nania talks about his latest book in the Northern Lakes Mystery Series. It's called Bow Cutter. And outdoor writer Joe Shedd is back to tell us about an Alaskan moose hunt that didn't go as well as planned. All that and more straight ahead on Outdoors Radio. Have more success on the ice with the LiveScope Plus Ice Fishing Bundle LI from Garmin. Drill fewer holes, catch more fish. This portable live sonar bundle comes with the LiveScope Plus system, EchoMap UHD 93SV display, and a lithium battery. All packaged in a case making hole hopping a breeze. LiveScope Plus helps you find more fish with improved resolution, reduced noise, clearer images, and better target separation. Fill your freezer with fillets with help from Garmin. Visit Garmin.com or shop your local Garmin dealer today. Since our inception, Huntworth has worked relentlessly to incorporate innovative technologies and forward-thinking design into affordable camouflage apparel. Our gear, designed with the disruption camel pattern, utilizes computer-generated graphics featuring a high level of random and abstract visual noise to help you remain undetected in the environment. So whether you need the latest in hunting gear technology or clothing that just simply fits your lifestyle, Huntworth Gear is what you're looking for. HuntworthGear.com. That's HuntworthGear.com. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. You know, recently we talked with Joe Shedd. He's an outdoor writer and book author and video producer and shed hunting expert. And he's got some great adventures in his new book that we talked about last time, which is Bucktails, and you can get it on his website, GoShedHunting.com. We alluded to one of the stories, but we didn't really get into too much detail. And, Joe, um, I thought it would be a good idea to have you back and talk about your moose hunt. So thanks for joining us again. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Set it up for us. You hunted in Alaska. What year was that? Yeah, this was way back in 2009. That seems like only yesterday to me, but yeah, way back, I guess so. You can't hunt Alaska right now, can you, for moose? Yeah, you definitely can hunt in Alaska. Um, the zone that I did my hunt in back then actually was closed to non-residents the following year. Uh-huh. So uh, I, I couldn't hunt there again, but yeah, you can certainly move from Alaska. Yeah. Okay. All right, so tell us about your hunt. What was the plan, and how did it go down? I ended up hunting in an area called the Swanson River Canoe Area. It's kind of like the Boundary Waters. It's a bunch of it's a designated wilderness with a bunch of uh, interconnected lakes uh, connected by portages. And having been to the Boundary Waters a little bit, it was something I was kind of familiar with. I didn't do a guided hunt or I didn't fly in or anything like that. This was a probably the best way I could get into the, the backcountry on the cheap. So that's kind of the way I did it. And really just kind of winged it. Didn't have a lot of experience doing this. This was a, a brand new thing to me, and I just basically paddled along in the evenings, hoping to see a moose along the shoreline. And uh, I got lucky, and uh, I saw a bull along the shoreline. He was in full velvet. Um, moose season opened. It was August 20th it opened. Um, he was still in full velvet, and I ended up shooting him. And uh, then it became quite an ordeal to try to get him out. Yeah, and as you said in the book, and I've heard before, the real work begins once the moose is on the ground. You're all alone there. How do you even roll over a moose? What do they weigh, a half a ton or close to that? Yeah, I think 1,000 pounds plus. I had a come-along that I brought and a bunch of rope. So when I was butchering it, I was able to uh, tie the uh, one of the hindquarters to the tree with a come-along and then just you know pop out the ball and socket joint by you know winching against the grain. So that's how I was able to you know, break apart the carcass to quarter it up. And then once you got it broken down into pieces, um, it was time to try to get out of there. Yes. I was 19 miles from the nearest road when I shot this moose. I was five portages back in, and the first portage back out was going to be a mile. Um, and obviously I was going to have to do that multiple times. But there was another option. There was a creek that was a, a mile and a quarter long that came out of the lake where the moose was killed. And then just going down the creek a mile and a quarter, and then it flowed into a river, and then it was a 19-mile float down the river back to where I'd locked a bike to a tree, and then I was going to ride 12 miles back to uh, my trucks. That sounded better than portaging to me, especially knowing the first portage was going to be a mile. Mm. But it didn't go so well. Yeah, so without telling the whole story, the creek was uh, rather difficult to float down, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it took me about 14 hours one day and six more of the next to go a mile and a quarter down the creek. Wow. And how many times did you have to empty the canoe and reload it? I didn't have to completely empty it too many times. When there would be a deadfall, a uh, fallen tree across the river, then I'd have to do it. And, you know, it's a designated wilderness area. I, I had a bow saw. That's all I had. I wasn't about to sit there cutting trees. And so there was some loading and unloading of the canoe to go over deadfall. And then you got to the river, so it was smooth sailing from there, right? Pretty much smooth sailing, uh, except for the rapids at the end. <laughs> yeah. I decided to run in the dark, um, but managed to survive, so I didn't lose the most. So that was good. <laughs> this trip took longer than you had planned, right? Yeah. There's a, a login book at the at the entry. You write down how long you plan to be out, and I I planned to be out for a week, and I, I finally came out the, the tenth day. So I was a little overdue, and not that anybody was really looking for me or anything, but uh, it. It took a lot. It took three days to get the moose out of there. Did you run out of food? I was running low on food. Obviously, I could eat the moose. Yeah. Um, but uh, but <laughs> it kept raining a lot, so uh, it was getting hard to build fires. You know, everything was kind of soggy and saturated. I did have a camp stove along, and I was kind of running low on fuel there. That was a conundrum that it was getting hard to build a fire. So you get out, and there was your bike, right? Well, I, I got out... I had no idea what time it was. I knew it was dark, and I, I didn't know how long it was going to be till daylight. And I had locked the bike to a tree because there had been some people down at the landing when I was there, and I, I couldn't find the bike in the dark. So I decided to walk 12 miles back to my truck. Oof. And what happened then? Well, it was the middle of nowhere. It was a 29-mile dead-end gravel road, and my truck was parked right at the very end of the road. And not like there's going to be a lot of traffic on this road to start with, especially in the middle of the night. Luckily, um, along came a vehicle, and I was able to, I just basically stopped and stood in front of the road and uh, blocked them from going any further anyway, and, and I was able to beg a ride to the 
back to my truck. Uh, and you finally got out, got the moose home, and obviously you survived it. At any point there, did you worry that you might not make it out? Yeah, I, I definitely had some concerns. Um, you know, it was it was excruciating work. I, I ended up basically dragging that canoe uh, with the moose in it. You know, in a lot of places, I was running out of water. Like I said, it was I, it was hard to build f- fires, so I was having trouble boiling water, and I was super dehydrated. And it was a lot of work, and I didn't have a first aid kit along or whatever. I was I was younger. I was invincible, but you know, if, I, if I'd have twisted an ankle or something, I mean, I I would have been in serious trouble and. Nobody knew where I was. There were so many things that could have gone wrong, and it, when it needed to go right, it just always worked out just the way it needed to go. So I, I was very, very fortunate on that trip. I think that's the way you live. Uh, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. So advice for anyone who might want to do a solo, whether it's a canoe moose hunt or even a deer hunt in the wilderness of Wisconsin or Minnesota? <laughs> Well, maybe the best advice would be to bring a buddy, but I, I like that solo adventure spirit, too, you know. So just know your limits, bring a first aid kit, and work hard. I mean, that, you know, those are the kind of memories that it's excruciating to go through, but when you look back on it, you can kind of think to yourself, wow, I actually did that. You know, it's you know, it's pretty rewarding in the end, too. Would you do it again? You know, I, I swore that I'd never do that hunt again, but that zone is close to non-residents now, so I couldn't hunt there again, but I would like to go back and see it again. Maybe you'll have a chance. Maybe so. Well, Joe, thanks so much for sharing that story, and folks can read the whole story. You've got the gist of it here, but they can read the whole story in your new book, Bucktails, and they can find that on your website, right? Yeah, it's uh, GoShedHunting.com. All right. Thanks so much, and we'll keep in touch. Sounds good, Dan. I appreciate it. You bet. Joe Shedd, outdoor writer from originally from Wisconsin, now living in Minnesota. His new book, Bucktails, Stories from the Deer Stand, has that story about his moose adventure and many stories about deer hunting. And you can find it on his website, GoShedHunting.com. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Listen to more Outdoors Radio online at dansmalloutdoors.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. And joining me now is an old friend, I haven't talked to in quite a while, but we've been having a great chat off air, and I thought, you know, we better turn the recording button on here pretty quick. Jeff Nania is his name. He went to UW-Stevens Point, had a long career in law enforcement, has done wetlands restoration for the Aldo Leopold Foundation. He's been involved in founding environmental charter schools here in Wisconsin and elsewhere. And he's also served, as you may know, some of you I'm sure know this, as executive director of the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. And if all that wasn't enough, in his retirement, he's decided he should be a mystery novelist, and he's written three novels, and uh, I think he's got a fourth one, in the Northern Lakes Mystery Series, and he joins us now by phone. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Dan, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Before we get started here, can I just say something to the audience? Sure. I personally want to take this opportunity to thank you for your perpetuation of our traditions. We would not have been as successful or maintained what we have without the help of a handful of others in Wisconsin, and you are a leader in that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Jeff, thank you for that. And, uh, gosh, you can turn the turn the mirror on yourself there because you've had a lot to do with it as well. But, yeah, there are a number of people in, in my generation who are active in the outdoors and have helped perpetuate or pass on the traditions and I'm glad to have been able to do it for as long as I have and, and hope to continue for a while yet before I hang up my uh, Stormy Cromer for good. 
You came to writing mystery novels. I don't even know if there is a traditional way to become a mystery writer. I've interviewed several people, and uh, John Galligan is one, and Sue Berg is another, and uh, gosh, uh, mysteries are very popular, and they always seem to be in series, and you've got a series too. How did you come to writing mysteries to begin with? Well, I would not be considered a conventional author. But, you know, it started about 74 years ago. Okay. That's before I was born. My dad was grouse hunting in northern Wisconsin with a friend of his, and they were looking for a place to stay. And guy said at the gas station, yeah, down the road here is a guy remodeling a work camp in the cabins, and I think he's got a cabin that he rents out. So my dad and his friend stayed there and got up the next morning, and the guy served him breakfast. We looked out on this beautiful northern Wisconsin lake. My dad said, you know, I have one child, my oldest brother. And he said, my wife, can I come back here in the summer? The guy says, that is just what I want to have happen. I want people to come here and enjoy this. That started a tradition that lasted in my family so far, 74 years. Wow. My family, my brothers and our children and grandchildren all meet back at the same place for three weeks every year to fish muskies, swim in the lake, and have a great time. And one of the things I used to do is I would buy a case of mystery books from a local Wisconsin writer and hand them out to everyone. And we'd read the mystery books together, and it was just kind of good fun to have. One year, this writer did not write a mystery book, and so I wrote Figure Eight, the first book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the rest is history, as they say, right? Well, my wife submitted it to a publisher who, first publisher, turned us down flat. Yeah. And the next publisher, just a little publisher in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, Little Creek Press, said, we can work with this. Yeah, okay. And that's been a wonderful thing. They've been great to work with, and a lot of people have been part of our success. Well, that's neat. So you got turned down once. Sigurd Olson went through 12 publishers before, (laughs) I, I think Listening Point was his first book, but I may be wrong on that. Knopf picked it up finally. You know, there, again, the rest is history. But in your case, the rest is mystery because you wrote mystery novels and you are still writing mystery novels. You have three now, Figure Eight, Spider Lake, and Bow Cutter. And you have a fourth one that's in the works? As a matter of fact, yes. I finished a fourth one. We're kind of going through the creative edit to look at it and see if it's a good story right now. And we've gone through that, and we're going to go ahead with the fourth book. So I'd like to publish it sometime when people are putting wood on the wood stove so they have the opportunity to sit comfy and read my book. Yeah. Uh, you got a title for it? Well, so far, the title is Musky Run. Musky Run. Okay. Well, let's uh, set the scene for these books. Now, they are set in northern Wisconsin. Spider Lake is a real place, but some of the other places are not real. Namakagan County doesn't exist, although it sure looks a lot like Sawyer County or Bayfield County or Price County, I guess. I've heard that these guys keep telling me that one of the mayors or one of the county executives said the same thing. Yeah. I said, no, no, this is all a fictional thing. Well, sure, it's fiction, but, I mean, you, <laughs> <laughs> you're you laughing because you were informed by your experience up north, obviously. You didn't just pull this out of the air. No, and I've spent a lot of time up there, and I truly love Wisconsin's landscape from north to south and east to west. Mm-hmm. What I enjoyed is that in writing a mystery book, this starts out, the first book starts out with a police officer patrolling South Madison, Mm -hmm. who is put into a very difficult position. Sometimes in my books, we got to figure out who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, how all this works and how it can change in the blink of an eye. Yeah. This guy finds his way. He's, He's hurt. He's in bad shape. And he finds his way by reconnecting with the outdoors. Uh huh. I bet there's not a person that listens to you that doesn't understand exactly what I mean. Oh, for sure. Uh, and whether we have been lost figuratively or hurt figuratively or really, many of us go go to the woods for solace and for restoration. And uh, people have asked me, you know, I just spent a month and a half putting the Deer Hunt Wisconsin show together and I was ready for a break when that thing hit the air just a couple weeks ago. And somebody asked me, what do you want to do now? And I said, I want to go in the woods and sit in a tree and be alone. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, people have come up to us at different book events and things like that. And they've shared their stories 
of reconnecting with the outdoors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, it's great. It, it certainly is. And your main character, John Cabrelli, is, like you, a retired cop. And he's in all three of the books I've read so far. I assume he's in the fourth one as well. Well, you're going to have to find out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell us about him. You told us a little bit about him. He's he's a wounded warrior, so to speak. Let me tell you about Cabrelli. I like him. Mm-hmm. He has become a friend of mine. He is just like everybody else in this world. He's just like all of us. He's not a guy, the superhero, swinging through the trees in a downtown community with two machine guns, mm-hmm. shooting everyone. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who faces all the challenges the normal person faces, and he finds his way through them, and he's definitely not perfect, but he, he's got a good heart. Yeah. He believes strongly that the good guys need to win. So, Cabrelli, sometimes through some unconventional means, always with a pretty good sense of humor, seeks to allow the good guys to win. Yeah. And the path to that victory is rather long and intricate and leads literally through the woods and waters of northern Wisconsin. And it's the setting, and it's a common theme, and it's a place of restoration and of uh, respite for us individually, but it is very much so for Cabrelli, isn't it? It is. Well, it's his life. So he inherited a cabin. Mm-hmm. In the first book, he inherited a cabin from his, his aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. And at at the right time in his life. And as soon as he got there, the title is Figure Eight. And Figure Eight is a path we follow in our life. Sometimes we end up at the same spot, but a completely different time. Uh John Cabrillo remembers looking out across Spider Lake and thinking, boy, I never will be able to swim back and forth across that lake. Yeah. And now the adult John Cabrillo can do it all the time. Yeah. And so we follow this figure eight path and we get to spots where we face the same situation or a similar situation to what we did before. And the question is, are we smart enough to deal with it this time? Uh Can we do better? And the one thing that stays the same is when he dives into Spider Lake and goes for a swim, he's rejuvenated. Uh He's reconnected. Well, Jeff, we've got to take a break here. Will you stay with us and uh, we'll continue this conversation? All right. Folks, I'm talking with Jeff Nania, author of three mystery novels, and we will be back with more to talk about the latest book right after this. I'm Dan Small. You're listening to Outdoors Radio. Here's a message from our friends at Remy Battery in Milwaukee, Escanaba, and Houghton. We at Remy Battery Company want to thank all of our customers and friends we have made over the past 90-plus years and your continued support of our local, family-owned company. Stop in and see the expertise of over nine decades of battery knowledge and customer service. Let us take care of the batteries for all of your needs, from power tools to sump pumps and ATVs to hunting decoys, even down to the smallest hearing aids. Big and small, we have them all. Stop in for a free battery and electrical check before you hit the road, trails, or waters. Don't forget to ask your sales representatives about volume pricing. Call Remy at 414-384-0340 or visit online at remybattery.com for all your battery and battery accessory needs. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. Folks, we're talking with Jeff Ninia. He is the author of three mystery novels in the Northern Lakes Mystery Series, and they feature his main character, his protagonist, John Cabrelli, a retired cop who finds himself in book three back in the law enforcement business 
And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, Jeff, you were talking about the rejuvenation that Cabrelli experiences when he dives into Spider Lake and that we all experience when we go to wherever that special place is, the woods or the lake or the river, where we get away from whatever it is that the rest of our life piles on top of us. Is that a common theme throughout the, all three novels and even the fourth one? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The common theme is that all of a sudden we can single out these things that we appreciate. I used to do this thing with our school kids. I'd take them out in an urban setting, trafficked by the Beltline in Madison, mm-hmm. in Milwaukee area, and listen to all the noise. And then we would get on the school bus and go to a natural area. Uh-huh. And they recognized the difference immediately. And I said, doesn't all that noise make you feel a little tired? Mm. Doesn't this give you room to think? That's what's so nice about Wisconsin. We got room to roam here. They just found a fossil. Um, and there are very few fossils located in northern Wisconsin. They just found one a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, that's 700 million years old. Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine the people who have trekked those trails, walking on the same place we have, down through wetlands and long rivers and long lakes? And uh, It's just an exciting thing to think we share that. Yeah, it is, and that reminds me of a trip I took. We were doing a show for Outdoor Wisconsin a number of years ago, and we were up at the headwaters of the St. Croix River and the Brule River, which, as you know, are in the same large wetland complex, which in prehistoric times was weighted down by uh, by glaciers, and when the glaciers melted... Glacial Lake Duluth, which is now Lake Superior, flowed south through the Brule River and into what is now the St. Croix River and down to the Mississippi. And when the earth rose up, gradually rebounded from all that weight of a mile of ice, that one river separated into two. And now we have two, one going south, one going north. The reason I mention that is there was a path along that portage that native peoples used to get from the Brule to the St. Croix, and where we walked it, it was, Jeff, it was deep. It was rutted about knee-deep, and I wondered, I wonder how many thousands of years of moccasins walked this path and saw these same rocks that we're seeing. Well, you know, there's a, there's a story in one of the books and about um, about a stone they find on the shore of Lake Superior, a Lake Superior agate. Oh, yeah. A billion years old. Hmm. Dan, that's older than I am. By a couple of years, yeah, for sure. Well, let's get away from the philosophical a little bit and get into the uh, the literary here. Cabrelli, your main character in the third book, which is called Bow Cutter, and uh, we'll ask you about that title in a, in a couple of minutes, um, he becomes the interim sheriff of your fictional Namakagan County, and why does he take that job? He retired from law enforcement. He's a guy who believes in justice. Uh-huh. He's a guy who believes in the good guys winning. And people like him, they can't walk away from it. Uh-huh. No more than you can walk away from what you do. It's in us. It's part of us. And we love to see the success that it brings. Yep. And so John Cabrelli does that. He's in a completely, he comes from an urban police department. Call after call, you hang up the radio and the next call comes through to this big country where he can drive these back roads. And he talks about the difference between law enforcement there and law enforcement in the city. Mm-hmm. And he meets an eclectic group of people. Now, I want to be clear. These books are a work of fiction. Yes. Even though some people tell me that they feel that they are one of the characters in the books. (laughs) Yeah. I try and help them all the time with that. But I will say this. In my life, I have had an eclectic group of friends and my family. And these people have been with me forever. And I enjoy taking some of their characteristics and making it part of my books. Sure. A fabrication, a a compilation of uh, characteristics from... Three or four people. Well, there's in one book, there's a Department of Criminal Investigation agent who's kind of a sleazy guy, uh-huh. or seems that way. And uh, I was signing books, and a 
bookstore in northern Wisconsin, and this guy walked in who was a retired DCI agent, and he said, that guy is me in that book. That's me. I said, no, no, no. The agent in that book was a good investigator. <laughs> cool. Um well, let's talk about a little bit about this book, a little bit about the plot without giving it away. So Cabrelli's okay. a interim sheriff in Namakagan County, and a couple of grouse hunters find a body in a SUV deep in the woods, and he's called out to the scene, and he notices something that suggests to him that somebody else was there, that this guy didn't die of suicide. And, and that's kind of where the what I call the crumbs that you drop through the woods to lead us on to clues to maybe discover the answer to this mystery. Uh, that's where that starts. Well, and the situation in book three in Bowcutter is the real is a real life situation. Mm. It describes the problem that we're having across the country, but in our rural areas, mm-hmm. and our rural areas are being affected by a criminal element that has determined that they can make inroads. It's a tragedy, and the tragedy is there are parts of this that involve the drug trade. Sure, sure. And they're consistent with how the drug trade is working. But we also talk about how issues that people have with drugs affect everybody but may affect them differently. For the drug agent, it is the person he's going to arrest. For the parent who gets the horrible message at night, it's a lifetime of heartbreak. Yeah. For the drug counselor, it's a life's work. Mm-hmm. But all of these things are true. And we follow that journey, but it's a little bit different. In book three, it's it's a little different. And as I said, all of the covers of the book are part of the mystery. My son is the cover designer. Mm-hmm. And bow cutter, balsam boughs, sure. have a special significance in Native American history. They play a, a special role. And in this book... Those bows play a special role. They almost adopt a personality. Mm-hmm. And bow cutters, um, some Native Americans, but many non-natives uh, still to this day harvest balsam boughs for wreath making in the Northwoods, and you can do that legally, and they sell them. It's a small cottage industry up north as well. Yeah, it's a thriving business. And what we did is, because I want my books to be technically correct, Mm-hmm. One of our students from the Northern Water School at Hayward is working on translating original Ojibwe words into English. Uh-huh. And so she was help, so helpful in giving us this her family's tradition and how these balsam boughs, how they played into life in general. is very interesting. Well, without giving much more of this away, let's uh, wrap this up and let's let people know how and where they can buy the books. They are available in bookstores throughout the state and elsewhere, correct? Yeah, they're available at independent bookstores across Wisconsin, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and things like that. And they're available from us. Initially, when we started this, there were a bunch of bookstores in Wisconsin who really backed us our publisher and them, and we still work with those bookstores directly. If they call us up tonight and say, we need 10 books tomorrow, we send them out. Uh Those books are printed at a little printer in Tony, Wisconsin, who does a great job on all the colors and things like that. Yeah, Tony, Wisconsin, the home of Jimmy Leonard, (laughs) among others. The only billboard in Tony. Yeah. (laughs) Jim Leonard running with a football. Yeah, yeah. And um, feetwetwriting.com, yep. that's the place you can order books directly for us, and they come, and I sign every one of them, and we've had a lot of fun. People keep up with us, and we keep up with them on Facebook, and it really has been fun. Well, Jeff, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, we're going to let you go here, but we will keep in touch, and when that fourth book comes out, we'll talk again and see how Cabrelli is doing, and uh, and uh, maybe see where that conversation leads us. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great. It was great fun. You bet. Jeff Nania is the author of the Northern Lakes Mystery Series, Figure 8, Spider Lake, and Bow Cutter, 
And one more to come. Jeff, what's the title, the working title of that fourth book again? Musky Run. Musky Run is the title of his fourth book. You can check out more of his writing at feetwetwriting.com. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Since our inception, Huntworth has worked relentlessly to incorporate innovative technologies and forward-thinking design into affordable camouflage apparel. Our gear, designed with the disruption camo pattern, utilizes computer-generated graphics featuring a high level of random and abstract visual noise to help you remain undetected in the environment. So whether you need the latest in hunting gear technology or clothing that just simply fits your lifestyle, Huntworth Gear is what you're looking for. HuntworthGear.com. That's HuntworthGear.com. Have more success on the ice with the LiveScope Plus Ice Fishing Bundle LI from Garmin. Drill fewer holes, catch more fish. This portable live sonar bundle comes with the LiveScope Plus system, EchoMap UHD 93SV display, and a lithium battery. All packaged in a case making hole hopping a breeze. LiveScope Plus helps you find more fish with improved resolution, reduced noise, clearer images, and better target separation. Fill your freezer with fillets with help from Garmin. Visit Garmin.com or shop your local Garmin dealer today. If your rifle, shotgun, handgun, or muzzleloader needs work this season, call Roger Williams at Northern Magnetic LLC. A licensed professional gunsmith for over 35 years, Roger can repair, customize, rebarrel, install sights and scope mounts, and more on all firearms, makes, and models. When you need a professional gunsmith, call Roger at 262-339-1798 or visit FixGuns.com. That's 262-339-1798 or FixGuns.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Jeff Kelm. We're brought to you by Cedar Lake Sales on Highway 33 West in West Bend on the web at cedarlakesales.com. And Christmas gifts for boaters are in stock. Save on life jackets and flow fast t-shirts, floating pads and Free hat and gift card with a uh, gift card purchase. So uh, if you can't choose what they want, get them the gift card, get the hat. Check out their website and Facebook page for details. We're also brought to you by Huntworth Gear, performance camo wear at a price you can afford, huntworthgear.com. And by Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation, a proud sponsor of Outdoors Radio and duck hunters everywhere at ducks.org. Well, Cedar Lake sales winter hours now. I think they're a little different from their spring, summer, and fall hours. Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Saturday, 9 to 2 at the main location and their service center, which is just behind them on Washington, 9 to noon on Saturday. If our TV show, Outdoor Wisconsin, is not airing where you live, now you can watch past episodes at milwaukeepbs.org. And our Deer Hunt Wisconsin show for the last several years, that show is archived on the Deer Hunt Wisconsin YouTube channel. My Facebook page has a link to it. If you missed anything on today's radio show or you want to download it and take it with you, if that's easier to listen, you can go to lake-link.com. Go to the outdoor radio page, which if you scroll all the way down on the home page for Lake Link, you can find that link there. Download the show and uh, take us with you wherever you go. You can find Dan on social media at Dan Small Outdoors. Find me at Hardwater Jeff. A couple of calendar items for you this week. The deer donation program is still looking for deer. If you happen to shoot more than you need and, uh, and want to donate it to a food pantry, go to the DNR website and just click in Deer Donation and you'll see exactly what you need to do. State park stickers and trail passes are also available now. I think we mentioned that a couple times already. They're good from the date of purchase through next December 31st, so through all of next year. Again, you can find those on the website. And if you happen to find a bear den, or if you did see one while you're deer hunting, or any time you're out in the woods, the DNR research team would like to know the location. The survey is looking at bear diets and their litter size, cub survival, things like that. Details on the DNR website under keywords, bear research. And don't forget, if you're listening to this show on Saturday the 10th or before, Saturday the 10th at midnight is the deadline to apply for spring turkey and bear permits. And if you're going ice fishing anytime soon, be extremely careful. Early ice is not very safe. Well, our theme music is by Warren Nelson. You can hear more of his tunes at warrennelson.com. I'm Dan Small. I'm here with Jeff Kelm. Get outside this weekend. And remember, 
Deer seasons may still be open where you are, so to be safe, wear some glaze orange. And join us again next week for Outdoors Radio. And the heron is fishing on one cold leg when the loon cries lover in the blue north wind I'll be trolling home to you when my wrist gets a little chilly on the gunnel when my lazy Ike is just too lazy to lure when the worms go dry in the coffee can honey I'll be trolling